2: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 356 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
2: As you guys will recall, when we left off last time, Sickles' salient at the Peach Orchard had been shattered, and now the soldiers of four Confederate brigades, led by Barksdale, Wilcox, Lang, and Wright, pressed ahead toward a very thin Union line on Cemetery Ridge.
0: Farther south, Confederate troops from Hood's and McClaw's divisions, having cleared the wheat field, were now gathering strength for a push toward the northern slopes of Little Round Top.
2: For George Meade and the Army of the Potomac, these were some desperate moments indeed. But Meade's earlier prompt efforts to address the crisis caused by Sickles, unauthorized, and reckless advance, were about to bear fruit, and it wouldn't be long before the onrushing Confederate tide ebbed and receded.
0: As y'all already know, on the far Federal left, at the southern end of the Union line, Two Fifth Corps brigades under Vincent and Weed had secured Little Round Top, while four others raced into the wheat field.
2: Although those Federals, along with men from Caldwell's Second Corps Division, suffered heavy losses in the bloody wheat field, the fierce contest for control of that spot severely sapped the strength of the attacking Confederates, and as the thinned ranks of Tig Anderson's. Kershaw's, and Sem's brigades pushed eastward through the wheat field and continued toward the northern slopes of Little Round Top, they would soon encounter the Fifth Corps' final division under Samuel Crawford.
0: Crawford was a trained physician and a former army surgeon who happened to find himself stationed at Charleston, South Carolina, when the first shots of the war were fired at Fort Sumter in April 1861. Later, trading in his scalpel for a sword, Crawford entered the infantry and proved himself to be a hard-fighting soldier.
2: When his two brigades of Pennsylvania Reserves arrived on the Union left that Thursday evening, Crawford, under orders from 5th Corps Commander Sykes, immediately sent one of them to the support of Vincent's men on the southern slopes of Little Round Top, while he positioned his remaining brigade under Col. William McCandless, on the hill's northern slopes, with its line of battle stretching toward the Wheatfield Road.
0: To McCandless's left, a lively fire from the summit was being kept up by Gibbs' Ohio battery and Hazlitt's guns. With Hazlitt having been killed earlier, that battery was now commanded by Lt. Benjamin Rittenhouse.
2: To those batteries' front, Burbank's and Day's shattered U.S. regulars came streaming back from the wheat field. Behind the retreating regulars, according to an eyewitness, advanced a mass of Confederates in quote, an irregular yelling line.
0: Having been told by Sykes to do what he thought best with McCandless's brigade and sensing that he could catch the mass of Confederates down there in a bad spot, Crawford seized the moment and ordered a charge.
2: Waiting for the retreating regulars to clear their front, the Pennsylvanians then rushed down the hillside, sweeping into the Plum Run Valley, with Samuel Crawford leading the way, hoisting aloft a flag he had appropriated from one of McCandless's regiments. With this surging line of bayonet-tipped blue heading straight for them, and with very little fuel left in their tanks after the struggle for the wheat field, the Confederates gave way and fell back through the, by now, thoroughly trampled field of grain, ultimately settling into positions in Rose's Woods and on Stony Hill.
0: And with that check, Longstreet felt that nothing more could be accomplished in this sector after he recognized, in his words, the, sturdy regular blow that tells a soldier instantly that he has encountered reserves or reinforcements.
2: Longstreet had by this time also ordered Wofford to halt the advance of his Georgia brigade. Wofford bridled at this order since his men had thus far suffered relatively few casualties and they were still full of fight. But had they continued forward, they would have encountered not only Crawford's Federals, but also much of John Sedgwick's just-arriving 6th Corps. Uncle John's 13,000 men were arriving on the field after completing their marathon 19-hour, 30-mile forced march from Manchester, Maryland. As Longstreet later noted, quote, To urge my men forward under these circumstances would have been madness.
0: That meant that after an absolutely brutal three-hour slugfest, the fighting on the left end of the Federal line at last tapered to a close and Meade's southern flank was secure.
2: Fifth Corps soldiers strengthened their lines on Little Round Top and also took up positions on Big Round Top right next door, while Crawford's and Sedgwick's men, backed up by what remained of Ayer's and Barnes Divisions, took up a defensive line stretching north from little round top and along lower cemetery ridge
0: on the confederate side what remained of hood's and mcclaw's divisions settled in along the eastern base of big round top and amidst the tumbled boulders at devil's den with their line extending northwesterly from there along Hawks ridge through rose's woods and across stony hill to the peach orchard where Edward Porter Alexander had established his line of guns.
2: However, even as things were quieting down on the federal left, the final dramatic moments of the fighting here were also playing out a bit farther north along Cemetery Ridge.
0: When George Meade learned that Sickles had been wounded and forced to relinquish command, he directed 2nd Corps Commander Winfield Scott Hancock to take charge of what remained of the 3rd Corps in place of David Burney, who, as senior division commander in the Corps, had assumed command in the immediate aftermath of Sickles' wounding.
2: Hancock's job was certainly not going to be easy, not only was he being given command of what was by then a broken corps, but he also, more importantly, had to somehow piece together a line of defense on Cemetery Ridge, which had been stripped of most of its troops to support Sickles. Caldwell's division had long since departed, sent off to its date with destiny in the wheat field, while several regiments and a number of batteries from John Gibbon's division had been sent forward to the area around the Cadori House along the Emmitsburg Road to provide support to the right of Humphreys' line.
0: The departure of these 2nd Corps troops to back up the 3rd Corps' overextended line had left this section of Cemetery Ridge largely empty of Federal troops, and the Confederate soldiers in Barksdale's, Wilcox's, Lang's, and Wright's Brigades We're now driving directly toward that extremely vulnerable portion of the Union position.
2: Needing troops, and quickly, Hancock first called on Brigadier General Alexander Hayes, whose division still held the northern end of Cemetery Ridge in strength. Responding to Hancock's call, Hayes turned to Colonel George Willard, telling the New York-born, West Point-educated officer, To move his brigade south and to, quote, knock the hell out of the ribs. Well, as it happened, Willard and his men had something to prove on July 2nd, perhaps more than any other units in the Army of the Potomac. You see, in September 1862, during the Antietam Campaign, when Stonewall Jackson captured Harper's Ferry and forced the surrender of the largest U.S. force until World War II, all four of Willard's New York regiments had laid down their arms, along with their honor.
0: Nine months later, they still bore the stigma of that surrender, along with the humiliating nickname, Harper's Ferry Cowards. Now, here at Gettysburg, Willard and his men were eager to erase that hated nickname and redeem their honor.
2: As Willard set off with his four regiments, Hancock soon caught up to them and he led them into position north of the George Weikert Farm and near McGilvery's line of Union Cannon.
0: To their front, Barksdale's Mississippians were coming on. After helping to drive back Humphreys Federals from the Emmitsburg Road, north of the Peach Orchard, Barksdale's rebels veered to their right and continued their advance east, sweeping down into the marshy, brush-covered, and boulder-strewn bottomland known as the Plum Run Swale.
2: Swale is a funny word. Yes, it is. You don't hear it much.
0: No, you don't.
2: What is a swale anyway, Tracy?
0: Well, Rich, it's a low-lying, sunken or marshy place.
2: I see. Very interesting.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway. Willard, wasting little time, led his three regiments forward, the 111th, the 125th, and 126th New York, while his fourth, the famed Garibaldi Guards of the 39th New York, moved farther south to deal with the 21st Mississippi near the trossel Woods.
2: Barksdale's Mississippians poured in a deadly fire as Willard's New Yorkers charged toward them, but there was no stopping the determined Yankees. One of Willard's men wrote, On we rushed with loud cries, with shells screaming and cannonballs tearing the air like so many fiends bent on destruction. On, on we rushed through the storm of fire and death, thundering above and darting around us like the thunder and lightning of heaven.
0: Barksdale's attack finally ran out of steam, grinding to a bloody halt in the marshy thickets of the Plum Run Swale. The hard-charging Mississippians had crushed Graham's position in the Peach Orchard and battled Humphreys along the Emmitsburg Road, but flesh and blood can only do so much, and now the attack of Willard's New Yorkers proved too much for the overstretched rebels to withstand.
2: The Mississippians' ranks fragmented and they fell back, but not before many of the rebels, worn out and used up by their almost superhuman exertions, now raise their hands and surrender. By this point, William Barksdale himself was down, mortally wounded. The fiery secessionist and fierce battlefield warrior was gathered up by Federal soldiers and carried behind the lines, where, overnight, he drew his last breath.
0: Momentum carried Willard's men through and beyond the Plum Run Swale and nearly all the way to the Emmitsburg Road, where they came under a heavy fire from Alexander's Confederate cannon in the Peach Orchard off to their left. Lashed by that artillery fire and with his mission fulfilled, Willard ordered his men to fall back. He had repulsed Barksdale, but George Willard would have little time to enjoy the redemption of his brigade, because as the New Yorkers made their way back to Cemetery Ridge, Willard was struck squarely in the face by a shell fragment and killed instantly.
2: There was no organized force near to oppose them, except our handful of 262 men. Most soldiers, in the face of the near advance of such an overpowering force, which had just defeated a considerable portion of an army corps, would have caught the panic and joined the retreating masses. But the First Minnesota had never yet deserted any post, had never retired without orders, And desperate as the situation seemed, and as it was, the regiment stood firm against whatever might come. Just then, Hancock, with a single aid, rode up at full speed, and for a moment vainly endeavored to rally Sickles' retreating forces. Reserves had been sent for, but were too far away to hope to reach the critical position until it would be occupied by the enemy, unless that enemy were stopped. Quickly leaving the fugitives, Hancock spurred to where we stood, calling out as he reached us, "'What regiment is this?' First Minnesota,' replied Colville. "'Charge those lines,' commanded Hancock. Every man realized in an instant what that order meant—death or wounds to us all, the sacrifice of the regiment to gain a few minutes' time and save the position— and probably the battlefield. And every man saw and accepted the necessity for the sacrifice. And responding to Colville's rapid orders, the regiment, in perfect line, with arms at right shoulder shift, was in a moment sweeping down the slope directly upon the enemy's center. No hesitation, no stopping to fire, though the men fell fast at every stride before the concentrated fire of the whole Confederate force, directed upon us as soon as the movement was observed. Silently, without orders, and almost from the start, Doublequick had changed to utmost speed, for in utmost speed lay the only hope that any of us would pass through that storm of lead and strike the enemy. Charge, shouted Colville as we neared their first line, and with leveled bayonets at full speed we rushed upon it. The men were never made who will stand against leveled bayonets coming with such momentum and with evident desperation. The first line broke in our front as we reached it, and we rushed back through the second line, stopping the whole advance. We then poured in our first fire and availing ourselves of such shelter as the low banks of the dry brook afforded, held the entire force at bay for a considerable time, and until our reserves appeared on the ridge we had left. Had the enemy rallied quickly to a counter-charge, its great numbers would have crushed us in a moment, and we would have made but a slight pause in its advance. But the ferocity of our onset seemed to paralyze them for a time and although they poured upon us a terrible and continuous fire from the front and enveloping flanks, they kept at a respectful distance from our bayonets, until before the added fire of our fresh reserves they began to retire, and we were ordered back. What Hancock had given us to do was done thoroughly. The regiment had stopped the enemy and held back its mighty force and saved the position. But at what sacrifice? Nearly every officer was dead or lay weltering with bloody wounds, our gallant colonel and every field officer among them. Of the 262 men who made the charge, 215 lay upon the field, stricken down by rebel bullets. 47 were still in line, and not a man was missing. The annals of war contain no parallel to this charge. The wounded were gathered in the darkness by their surviving comrades and sent to field hospitals, and the fragment of the regiment lay down for the night. Lieutenant William Loughran, 1st Minnesota Infantry, Gibbons Division, 2nd Corps, Army of the Potomac,
0: Barksdale's Mississippians may have been driven back, but for Winfield Scott Hancock, the crisis was far from over. Through the smoke and dust, and with the sun starting to set behind South Mountain to the west, the intrepid Hancock, who was truly superb that afternoon and evening, saw another line of Confederate infantry heading straight toward Cemetery Ridge.
2: They were Wilcox's Alabamans, Desperately needing men to meet this new threat, Hancock happened upon a single regiment, the 1st Minnesota, which was positioned in support of Lt. Evan Thomas's thundering cannon of Battery C, 4th U.S. artillery. My God, exclaimed Hancock, are these all of the men we have here?
0: Hancock went to Col. William Colville, commander of the 1st Minnesota, pointing to the Confederate battle flags waving in the midst of the Alabamans' advancing lines. Hancock asked, Do you see those colors? Colville nodded, and Hancock snapped, Then take them.
2: Colville gave the order, and with bayonets fixed, the Minnesota men surged forward. The heroic charge of the First Minnesota would forever afterward become enshrined in the story of the Battle of Gettysburg, with the tale rivaled in legend only by that of the 20th Maine's bayonet attack on Little Round Top. At Hancock's order, this single regiment of Federals, with just 262 soldiers in its ranks, charged an entire brigade of Confederates with four times its number of men. The Minnesotans were veterans, and they knew they were being sacrificed, but they charged forward anyway, directly toward Wilcox's Alabamans.
0: Fortunately for the outnumbered Federals, Wilcox's brigade had already lost much of its momentum by the time the 1st Minnesota charged toward it. It had taken losses in its encounter with Humphrey's men along the Emmitsburg Road. Then, after crossing the road, the soldiers on the right of Wilcox's line came under fire from some of Willard's New Yorkers, while those Alabamans on the left were hit by fire from some of Humphrey's units that had rallied on Cemetery Ridge. And all the while, Thomas's guns continued to bang away.
2: Surprised by the Minnesotans' charge, Wilcox's skirmishers fell back to their regiments, while Colville's men swept all the way down to the Plum Run Swale, where they settled in for a savage firefight with the Alabamans. Unsupported on both sides and with no one coming up behind him, Wilcox realized that he was alone. To his right, Barksdale's Mississippians had already been driven back, while Lang's Floridians hadn't kept up with his left. Without any help, Wilcox understood that there was nothing more his Alabamans could realistically hope to accomplish, and so he ordered them to fall back.
0: At the same time, almost as if by common consent, a badly wounded Colonel Colville ordered the surviving remnant of the 1st Minnesota to pull back as well. What was left of the regiment rallied on Cemetery Ridge.
2: The number of Minnesotans who are reported to have fallen during this famed attack varies. Traditionally, sources place the number at 215, which, if 262 men made the charge, works out to an appalling 82% loss. Some recent studies, however, put the number of fallen at only 180, which is still a 68% loss. Whatever the exact figure, there can be no denying that the first Minnesota suffered heavily in its gallant suicidal charge, turning back Wilcox's Alabamans while buying Hancock a few precious minutes to further strengthen the Union line on Cemetery Ridge.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
0: Not long after Wilcox's Alabamans fell back, so too did Lang's Floridians. This small brigade, just three regiments strong, the 2nd, 5th, and 8th Florida, began the assault with about 700 men, and like Wilcox's brigade, it had also suffered quite a few casualties during its advance toward the Emmitsburg Road.
2: After helping to drive back Humphrey's Federals, Lang's Floridians suffered from a deadly fire poured into them by the 19th Maine and from Lt. Julian Weir's Battery C, 5th U.S. Artillery, whose cannons were peppering the advancing Confederate lines with canister. Both the 19th Maine and Weir's Battery had taken up positions just south of the Cadori Barn and were in a good spot to hammer Lang's left. Lang's ever-dwindling line crossed the Emmitsburg Road, but it wouldn't be long before their advance stalled out. Like Wilcox, Lang also realized that he was in a spot of trouble, and he too also ordered a withdrawal.
0: For the Federals, Lang's withdrawal left only Wright's brigade to contend with. Ambrose Wright, a 37-year-old Georgia lawyer and politician, led his 1,400 men forward from Seminary Ridge around 6.30 p.m. from a point west of the Kadori House.
2: Shells around us tore our bleeding ranks with ghastly gaps, remembered one of Wright's Georgians as the brigade neared the Emmitsburg Road. There Wright's men crashed headlong into the 15th Massachusetts and 82nd New York. Two of John Gibbon's 2nd Corps regiments that had been advanced to the roadway. It was a short but fierce fight. The commanders of both these federal regiments were killed before the men from Massachusetts and New York beat a hasty retreat.
0: Wright's gray and butternut ranks continued their advance, bearing down on the cannon of Lieutenant T. Fred Brown's Battery B, 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery, which had also been sent forward.
2: Brown's guns blasted the Georgians with a few rounds of canister, but before they could limber up and retreat, the rebels were upon them. Brown, who was wounded by a bullet through his neck, lost all but two of his half-dozen three-inch ordnance rifles.
0: At the same time, the soldiers on the southern end of Wright's line stormed across the Emmitsburg Road beyond the Kadori House and overran Julian Weir's battery, capturing three of his six Napoleons.
2: But Wright's Georgians couldn't stop to haul away the captured pieces. They pressed on instead, charging directly toward the center of the Union line on Cemetery Ridge. The Georgians' ranks were thinned with each step forward, Yet on they rushed, sweeping up the gentle western slope of Cemetery Ridge and piercing the Federal line several hundred yards south of the soon-to-be-famous Copse of Trees, which the following day would serve as the supposed focal point of Pickett's Charge.
0: Wright later exaggerated what his brigade had accomplished that evening when he proclaimed, quote, "'We were now complete masters of the field,' having gained the key, as it were, of the enemy's whole line.
2: But in truth, the high-water mark of Wright's advance proved to be no genuine breakthrough, but only a momentary piercing of the Federal line. Federal soldiers from Alexander Webb's Philadelphia Brigade, who in less than 24 hours would bear the brunt of Pickett's charge, now poured a destructive fire into Wright's left flank while the guns of Lt. Alonzo Cushing's and Captain William Arnold's batteries, in position north of the copse of trees, raked the Georgians' lines with canister.
0: Under such a destructive fire and lacking any support, Wright ordered a retreat. The next day, speaking with fellow Georgian Edward Porter Alexander about the prospects of Pickett's charge breaking through the Union position on Cemetery Ridge, Wright said the problem would not be in getting there, but in staying there, since the, quote, whole infernal Yankee army is up there in a bunch.
2: As the Georgians fell back, Federals from Webb's Philadelphia Brigade charged forward and recaptured Brown's three-inch rifles, while men from the recently arrived 13th Vermont, a 1st Corps regiment, advanced to retake Weir's Napoleons. The 106th Pennsylvania of the Philadelphia Brigade claimed also to have captured no fewer than 200 Georgians in and around the Kodori house and barn.
0: The tide had turned. Barksdale had been repulsed, as had Wilcox, Lang, and Wright. The survivors of these battered brigades fell back to the trees that lined Seminary Ridge, where they caught their breath and settled in for the night, counting their losses and wondering how they had come so close to breaking the Yankee line, but in the end had fallen short.
2: Where was their support? It was the question on the minds of many Confederate soldiers that night. On the opposite ridge line, soldiers in blue reformed their lines, Despite many desperate moments, the federal line on Cemetery Ridge had held. As the smoke of battle cleared, darkness settled over the fields and woodlots. Behind his lines, a very relieved George Meade took stock of the situation. One of his officers turned to him and said that it had been a close-run thing, that their lines had nearly crumbled and the day been nearly lost. Yes, agreed Meade, but it is all right now. It is all right now. But it wasn't, not quite yet. The fighting on July 2nd wasn't over, because even as the left and center of the Union fishhook line of defense began to recover from the repeated sledgehammer blows of Longstreet's attack, the soldiers on the federal right, on Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, found themselves locked in a deadly, desperate battle with Dick Yule's Confederates for possession of those hilltops.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Second Day at Gettysburg, The Attack and Defense of Cemetery Ridge, July 2, 1863 by David L. Schultz and Scott L. Mingus, Sr.
2: Schultz and Mingus's book is an excellent, detailed look at the fighting we've talked about here in broad strokes in this episode. And it's much appreciated, especially for the picture it paints, of all that Hancock did on July 2nd to save that portion of Meade's line on Cemetery Ridge from the hard-charging Confederates who were driving forward hell-bent on smashing through the federal position.
0: Don't forget, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Twitter feed, Facebook page, and Instagram account.
2: We wanted to let you know that just yesterday, we released members episode number 119, which was part two of the story of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and his rise to fame. So, we hope the members of the Strawfoot Brigade enjoy those couple of episodes.
0: And we want to be sure to thank the newest members who signed on this past week over on Patreon, like Isaac, Mark, Peter J, Kevin, and Marcus.
2: Then, another Peter J, John, and Sidekick65.
0: And then thanks to Brian K. and Dion D. for their donations. Those are always much appreciated.
2: Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.